and let's um, let's open with some silence. Just take a deep breath and be here. If it helps to close your eyes, you can do that. Our goal is to be here, to be present, to be open. And so we say grace be in our heads and in our thinking, grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, grace be in our ears and in our hearing, grace be in our mouths and in our speaking, grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and grace be in our ends and at our departing. And um, taking our clue from Jesus, who as far as we know excluded no one except those who thought they knew who should be excluded. No matter who you are, where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So every evening at the end of the day, but before the evening meal, People in this village in the Himalayas would gather at the monastery to meditate. And uh, though most of us do our meditation alone and in private, I would say everyone here does their daily spiritual practice or risk eternal punishment. No. Uh, <laughs> Usually we do our meditating alone or and in private, but if you've ever done a sit with a group, you know that it's a very powerful thing to do. As one of my teachers, uh, our Progoff, said, the solitary work we cannot do alone. So even when you're doing something very private and solitary, being with others, like running with somebody else, it's just it's just is empowering. So the, the guru at this particular monastery had a reputation for being a great spiritual master, and just being in his presence was very calming. So every day at the end of the day and before going home for the evening meal and retiring, people in the village would come, and they would sit with this guru. They would hear the guru's talk, the Dharma talk, and then they would have a 20 or 30-minute sit, and then we'll go home. And it was peaceful, it was helpful, it was healing for the community, it brought health and energy to everybody. Um, now the guru at this monastery had a cat. And the cat had a tendency to wander about after the guru's talk during the meditation. So the guru, this is my cat. My cat's name is Vaka because Vaka goes everywhere, has sits anywhere he wants to. Um, when Vaka goes to heaven and approaches the throne of grace, he's going to say to God, aren't you sitting in my chair? So if you know cats, what I'm about to say is going to sound implausible, but just you have to go along. It's a story. The guru's cat would wander around during meditation, bothering everybody during meditation, climbing their laps and wanting to be petted and that sort of thing. And so um, what the guru do, would do during even meditation is that he would tie the cat up to a post nearby. And um, cats can live for a long 
time. We have one with us that's in its 14th year. So this cat lived for a long time. So it became a ritual every evening after the Dharma talk, the guru would tie the cat to a post nearby so the cat could be tied and not disturb the worshipers. And as I said, cats can live for a long time. Eventually this cat died, went on to the great catnip in the sky. And so the worshipers at the monastery loved their guru. They knew the guru loved a cat, so they got the guru another cat. And out of habit as much as anything, the guru began to tie that cat to the nearby post during meditation after the Dharma talk. Gurus can live for a long time, too. And um, so this guru passed on, and the monastery was very lucky because they were able to get another uh, guru from another nearby monastery who was just, became just as beloved and just as valuable to the community. So he came in and took that guru's place, and they continued the habit of tying the former guru's cat to the post during meditation so the cat would not disturb anybody. After several generations, <laughs> some monks in the monastery got together and they wrote a book, a very impressive book of theology on the importance of why and how to tie a cat <laughs> during meditation at the monastery. It was a book that made the Amazon top list. It was a great book. People liked it. Other communities used it. They got their own cats, tied cats during the meditation period. And then after a while at the original monastery, another group of monks rose up and took exception to what the first group of monks had written, saying that their writing about the tying of cats was not only wrong but heretical. They wrote another book in opposition to the first book. And the monastery split. People took sides. Some of them went with a global monastery group. The monastery um, became boring and dull and lifeless. All over the world, yesterday and today, people have gone to religious services and in one fashion or another have participated in tying a cat during worship. They have seen the, said the same prayers, the same creeds, performed the same rituals, having no idea where those creeds, prayers, rituals came from. But heaven help you if you fiddle with one of them. And of course, there are divisions about how we tie our particular cat. Some people take issue with what we believe about the cat, what color the cat has to be, the sex of the cat, all that sort of stuff. So we become a fragmented cat-tying people. Yeah, 
So one of the cats that we tie during worship, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic, is that we all say this thing we call the Lord's Prayer. And you know, even people who profess no religious affiliation know the Lord's Prayer. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I have been uh, asked to conduct a memorial service for a Buddhist, which will be in a couple of weeks, and one of the requests was, would you include the Lord's Prayer? Okay. And um, so many people in that service will will fake the Lord's Prayer. They will mumble. They'll look. If there's an order of service, they'll cheat and use that. Or they'll look at other people and read their lips and see what they say. But we can. Lord's Prayer is used in most, most funerals everywhere. Most memorial services use Lord's Prayer. So people who never go to church will hear the Lord's Prayer. It's used at a lot of weddings. Lord's Prayer is used at a lot of weddings. It's even used in some secular events, you know, like some civic clubs use it. Uh, some um, AA groups and Al-Anon groups use the Lord's Prayer. Um, they say it. People say it. And, and, you know, most people, I'm sure no one here, but most people are not aware that the Lord's Prayer, as we say it, even in this church, is not in the Bible. Now, some people are surprised, stunned, shocked, and offended when they hear that most scholars are fairly certain that Jesus himself did not say the Lord's Prayer, nor did he teach the Lord's Prayer. Rather, like the book of How to Tie a Cat During Meditation, the Lord's Prayer was constructed by the followers of Jesus probably three generations after the execution, two at most. Now, I don't mean for this to sound as judgmental as it could be taken, but unless a person has done some fairly serious, what I call religious literacy work, I personally don't think saying the Lord's Prayer is useful or helpful. Because at the naive level of interpretation, it teaches that God is off out there in space somewhere, a bigger than life human creature. Our Father, who art in heaven. And so that underscores a belief in the separation of humans from the sacred. And I just want to assure you this is one of the things I would like to be remembered about my teaching, is that there is not now, nor has there ever been, any separation between God's creatures and God, ever. And yet, again, that's what this prayer, as well as much Christian teaching taken at the naive level, teaches. So the vast majority of people who've ever been exposed to any notion of the Christian story believe that there is a separation between God and creatures and earth. There's heaven and there's earth, and there's a space between. And we have been taught that we must seek for God. I have had people say to me, uh, Pastor, would you pray for me? I try to pray for God, but God is off, away from me. And 
I, I want to say no, it's not God who's moved. You know, it's us that we become unaware of things. So since I'm using what uh, we call the Lord's Prayer as a platform from which to push to do these talks, I'm going to do right now a bit of uh, religious literacy teaching about the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to go up to the phrase daily bread and temptation, which we'll leave for the next couple of weeks. And... and um, I, I want to acknowledge that there is nothing that upsets some people who call themselves Christian quite so much as tampering with some part of what they consider to be Christian teaching or Christian tradition. But I would like for you to be aware, those of you who are here at St. Paul's, that there are other prayers, there are other affirmations of faith that are quite progressive, that are quite open, what you would call liberal, that are used by other liberal and progressive churches that are not the same prayer and creed that we use. Those are, there are available out there, those, those things. But even liberals, even progressives, can easily fall into the trap of, well, we've always done it this way. So let's don't change anything. So most people are, as I said, are not aware that the words we say, and I think the formula in the Church of England and Episcopal Church, Anglican churches is, and so as he taught us, let us pray, and then we say the words of the Lord's Prayer. Um, most people are not aware those words that we say are not in the Bible. And as far as I can tell, the first use of the prayer that we use appeared in the English Book of Common Prayer in 1549. There are two versions of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. There's a longer one in Matthew. There's a shorter one in um, Luke. There is no prayer in Mark. There's no such prayer in John. So... When this prayer is referred to as the Lord's Prayer, you get the impression that this is something Jesus did. He handed it on to his disciples and so forth. But if this was the case, and if Jesus considered it so important, why isn't it recorded faithfully in all four Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas? And it's not. Why does Paul say anything about it? Why, are they, why isn't it in any of the other manuscripts? Those of you who can't read this, it's a cartoon I've had for years where Jesus is saying, um, now listen carefully, I don't want four different versions of this. If it were that important, why isn't it in all the scripture? That's my point. How many of you, show of hands, have seen The Chosen? Not very many. Wow. Hold them up again. Let me see. Okay, you've seen it. I, I don't know whether there are four of you. Four, only four. Wow. I don't know if you will agree with me or not, but um, The Chosen is a, a serial a program narration about the life of Jesus. And I heard about it on a 
podcast that's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And the reason that it's got my attention is that the money for producing The Chosen did not come from one big, one or two big sources. It was crowdsourced, you know, like GoFundMe. And it is a multi-million dollar production. It is, go look it up on Wikipedia. And so I, I decided that I wanted to watch it, and if I was going to watch it, I was going to start with episode one, series one, and so we sat down one night to watch it, and within 10 minutes, I turned to Sherry and said, I'm not going to like this, <laughs> but I loved it. I loved every single episode of it, and now we have watched all three series, I mean, the, the three seasons, all episodes, uh, this is the guy who plays the part of Jesus. You will be surprised to learn that it's shot partly in Texas and other in Nevada and other places. It's very conservative. It's very conservative. Um, what I like about it is that it gives some um, insightful background stories to the narrative of Jesus. For example, there is one of the characters in it uh, whom I absolutely love. His name is Paras Patel. He plays Matthew. And Matthew is depicted in The Chosen as having autism. And if not that, certainly Asperger's. And, um, you know, in the Jesus narrative, Jesus and his disciples are walking by the tax collector's booth one day, and Matthew there collecting taxes and Jesus says come on follow me and Matthew says okay so he gets up and follows Jesus and that's a story but there's got to be more to it than that because Matthew was a Jew and he he collected taxes from his fellow Jews and Jews hated tax collectors so here is Jesus saying I'm going to get a tax collector to come be part of my intimate group you guys welcome him and they would mm, I don't think so so you see that dynamic played out in The Chosen. Matthew is not easily uh, accepted by the other disciples. Now here's the part about the, the, the Matthew story that, and that um, just doesn't work, but it's, it's cute. It's nice. So Matthew in the story is a tax collector. He's good with figures, and he writes things down, right? So in The Chosen, he is depicted as following Jesus around with a piece of paper and a ballpoint pen, <laughs> writing things down. And this is Matthew and Jesus in a scene where uh, they are collaborating about the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew and Jesus have been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, I think this goes here and not here. And Matthew said, no, I think it fits better here. And so they take a break from this work. But this is where they have been working on the Sermon on the Mount, right here. And they're taking a break right now to kind of sort it out. You can see all the papers laid out and where they're writing. And so the chosen depicts Jesus as after doing this work with Matthew, he goes and he gives the Sermon on the Mount, all chapters in Matthew. And I want to assure you that though I wasn't there, it didn't happen that way.
the early followers of Jesus who gathered to remember him and, and, um, and what he taught, they were Jews. And if you know anything about Jewish people and their customs, um, Jews, religious Jews, pray all the time. They pray going in the house, going out of the house. They touch the medusa when they go in, they go out, they, they kiss, they pray before every meal. I mean, uh, like, um, it would not hurt us to pray as much as Jews pray. They pray all the time. So in the Jewish community, the early Jesus followers of Jews, there was really no need to teach anything about prayer. They were already faithful in praying. And because Jews prayed so often and for such a variety of reasons, it makes sense that there's no comment in the scripture about them praying. It was taken for granted. Jesus didn't need to teach people how to pray or to encourage them. Good Jews already knew and practiced such. Now, the, things, the reason things are written down in what we call scripture, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the ones that we have, was because as the movement began to grow and spread and move um, both um, in terms of time and geography away from the original event, there were people who didn't know, hadn't heard, and so they would ask those who gathered in these communities of empowerment, what do you do? What do you say? What stories do you tell? How do you pray? If you have a worship service or whatever you call it, what do you do? And uh, much of that is written down in a document called the Didache, which comes from the early part of the first century, which we have the first recorded worship service in that particular document. It was written down for people who didn't know, who hadn't been there, so that they would say, oh, this is what those people who are followers of Jesus do. And so it would make sense that it would come to pass that eventually they might write down because they had the whole Hebrew scripture at their disposal to take some phrases from both Jesus and from their tradition and they would create liturgies. That's a very simplistic way to explain why we have different tellings of the story because Matthew wrote mostly for Jews, Mark for Gentiles, Luke had a different audience, John was an entirely different story. We'll look at that. So you don't have any teaching in Mark, the earliest gospel about Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. This prayer, he did say one thing in Mark. He said, when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything to forgive, you forgive others so that you yourself can ask for forgiveness. That's a teaching in Mark. That's the only teaching in Mark. The other observation that the writer of Mark makes about Jesus and prayer is that when Jesus is um, in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before execution, he is heard to pray, Daddy, Abba, if it is possible, get me out of this. And so that prayer, some scholars think, was appropriated 
it's a too personal and unique a prayer to fit for all of us under all circumstances. But it was taken to, uh, the scholars say, to contribute to the phrase, lead us not into temptation, which we'll talk about in, in a couple of weeks. Because that's a very troublesome prayer for a lot, phrase for a lot of people. If God can keep us, lead us not into temptation, maybe if God's doing something else, like watching a ball game or trying to help a guy make a pass, he might forget us and we will go into temptation and there oh, God would say, Oh man, I messed that up. I shouldn't have done that. I'm gonna get struck by lightning someday. So that's okay. So the prayer that's found in Matthew is something that was constructed by whoever wrote that document. It was shaped over a period of time, uh, Bart Ehrman can document this. If you don't know Bart Ehrman, you can look him up. And uh, it was shaped by those who copied the scripture and edited the scripture in the years that, that followed. Now, I personally find that doing this religious literacy work is fun. It's exciting. It's to me like finding out how a magic trick works. A lot of people find that disappointing. They don't want to know about it, but I think it's really fun to do. So if you have what I call revealed theology, the revealed theology is where your theological beliefs come because you think they were handed down by an authority from on high somewhere else. If you have a revealed theology in contrasted to a discovered theology, then what I'm teaching about the Lord's Prayer might be uncomfortable for you, upsetting. But my stance is because there is no religion on the, on the earth where beliefs play as important a role as they play in the Christian religion, I think it's helpful for us to know, helpful for us to know where those beliefs came from, why we have those particular beliefs. So I think you will find that every religion that has now or ever has in the past claimed that their religion or their religious knowledge is something that has been revealed to them or handed to them to, from God results in a religion that is exclusive and divisive. Okay? There's not, I, I can't find an exception to that. So to move from exclusive notions about one's religion or religious beliefs to something that is inclusive for everybody is clearly something that's difficult for a lot of people who live in our culture. It requires, among other things, a mature faith. Um, and most people do not attend church to deconstruct. Most people attend church to be comforted and to be bolstered. Um, I understand that. I'd like some comfort myself. I'd like some assurance that we are, as a country, not on the verge of squandering the entire American experiment. What I see taking place does not encourage me. I see so many people who claim to be religious, even Christian, who are contentious and divisive. What you see happening in the Middle East is a religious war. I do see hope. 
hopes different from optimism. Meister Eckhart, the German mystic, the one who said the eye with which I see God is also the eye with which God sees me, said theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language. And when I put this side by side with a statement made by Catholic theologian Karl Rahner, a phrase you've heard me say before, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all, I see our work cut out for us. So you might ask, now that I'm done with the religious literacy part, what in the world is the practical application of this? Well, for one thing, mystics see and experience and express that they are a part of the world, not apart from the world. That's a huge differentiation. We are woven into the fabric of the cosmos. Now, you might ask, how do I become a mystic? Well, it's either that you become a magic, mystic um, gradually and then suddenly, or it's the other way around. You become a mystic suddenly and then gradually. You hold your child, your first child, in your arms, and suddenly there's something that evolves over a long period of time. Or you sit and you sit and you sit and you sit, and one day you get it. That you're not there to attain something, but to realize what you already are. Now, why don't we realize this? Well, because our culture, Western culture, is shaped by Christian doctrine that began not with Jesus, but with Paul. Uh, and if you don't say that, certainly it began with the Council of Trent in the 16th century, taught that we're, we're separate from God. Um, we're separate from the eternal, and that, that blocks our spiritual growth. That's the first major era that blocks our spiritual growth and happiness. The second is the teaching that we are separate from each other. And, and, and we are not, I am coming to understand, separate even within ourselves. We are, each of us, a cooperative community of trillions of cells that work together to make up who we are. Now, this is one of the ways that I understand prayer and why I continue to pray. If the scientists tell me that their observation of an experiment affects what they are observing, then I think my intention makes a difference in the world. Comprende? Now, I don't say I manipulate the divine. I just say it makes a difference. Whether I'm approaching what I see with hope, love, honesty, and freedom, or with some sort of negativity, judgment, hatred, or whatever, that makes, that makes a difference. 
Barbara Brown Taylor, Episcopal priest in her book, The Luminous Web, says, God is all over the place. God is up here, down here, inside my skin and out. God is the web, the energy, the space, the light. Not captured in them, but revealed in that singular vast net of relationships that intimates everything that is. So I say it again. The notion that observation influences outcomes supports, at least for me, the efficacy of prayer. And this is why um, I'm so proud of this sentence. I, I don't know where I got it. Uh, I think I got it. I think it's mine, but it could have come some, some, somewhere else. This is why I think of God not so much as the architect, but as the architecture that we are part of. See the difference? Of course, even this kind of thinking itself is metaphorical because we can't conceive of God. So I mentioned in a preview that sent out today the book that Harvey Cox wrote called The Future of Faith. I was at Harvard when uh, Dr. Cox was working on that book and talked about that book. It didn't come out for years after that. Um, and and I also mentioned in the preview the joke that was around when I was in seminary about when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and Adam said, well, my dear, we live in an age of transition. <laughs> and we do, and, and we do. And, and a lot of people, I think, have kind of been dismissive of where we are by saying, oh, we've always been in an age of trans transition. I know that um, uh, neighbors of ours, when we first expressed some concern about global warming, said, oh, the earth has always gone through changes. It's no big deal. I, I had a friend, um, a good Jewish man, um, practicing Jew, who was very liberal. And um, he and I, he's deceased now. I miss him. At the, he and I would talk about political things and religious theological things. And right after Trump was elected, I was expressing my dismay and heartbreak. And he said, oh, I don't worry about it. It's no big deal. We went through Nixon and Agnew. We'll survive this. It's nothing to worry about. I wonder what he would say today. Um, frankly, Trump is not my concern. My concern are those who are willing to see this narcissistic sociopath criminal as capable of leading our country. And even if Trump is not reelected, our country is at a crossroads. The largest economies of the world are soon going to be China and India, not the U.S. And we can expect, as Stephen Kleinberg said, standing right here four months ago, five months ago, whenever it was, that Eastern cultures and Eastern religions are going to take over the West. It's happening now. The, 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 the Western mindset has emphasized personal responsibility at a secular level and personal salvation at a religious level. When I start, first started talking about um, a, a theology and spirituality that would speak to the not yet, um, the first responses I got after those who said, are you a Christian and don't you believe the Bible, uh, were, um, 
well, what happens to us after we die? What about me? You see how selfish and narcissistic that is, right? What about me? What's going to happen to me when I die? And whatever else the not yet is asking of and for us is that we put aside the issues of personal responsibility and individual salvation and embrace communal responsibility and communal salvation. Now, you are well aware that there are many good people who consider themselves good Americans, good Christians, good people who support some terribly un-American, un-Christian, uncivil actions. And we are living in a culture where a growing number of people are okay with supporting some very irreligious and harmful behavior. This should lead us to examine Christian theology because bad theology produces bad behavior. And good theology has teeth in it. And I think one of the reasons that I'm committed to doing religious literacy work, in, in addition to the fact it's just pure fun for me to do, is that it's a lack of this information and knowledge that has led to the mess that we're in. People not knowing things. Uh, Christian nationalism, and I support the program that Barbara is, is supporting, Christian nationalism is, is the looming threat that it is because people don't know this stuff. Those who would tear down the wall between church and state and use public funds to support what they call faith-based programs are not just dismantling democracy. They're trying to institute an empire-driven theocracy. Good theology matters. Now, I don't know about you, but I learned in church some things that were harmful. Um, I had a good church. I good people, I was around loving people, and uh, they, they meant no harm. But they lacked wisdom and skill, what the Buddhists call skillful means. But I learned in church some things that were just absolutely wrong. For one thing, I was encouraged to confuse beliefs with facts and to let beliefs trump facts, pardon the pun. And because, because I was encouraged, taught, actually taught, that our version of religion, Southern Baptist religion in Tennessee in the 40s and 50s was the only and best religion, I was taught to look down on other people, to judge other people, to, to, to not have empathy but pity for other people because they didn't have the truth that we did. And that, that led to this insane belief that because we're riding on the right side, God's going to reward us and punish them. It just comes with the territory. Now, let's go back to the story about the guru's cat. <laughs> Nobody in that story acted out of bad motive. Everybody thought they were doing the right thing. All of them were doing what made sense at the time. There was a time when it made sense to tie the guru's cat during meditation. And there came a time when to do so was ridiculous. Being able to discern that time and suss it out and act on it is where we are.
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Scholars say Jesus likely never used the word kingdom, but whatever word he used, he said it's around us. It's within us. We are in it. It is in us. Jesus never said that this community of followers was the church. He never said it was a place called heaven. And my experience is that living well has very little to do with how you tie cats. Indeed, far from being sustaining and enlivening, the focus on beliefs often leads to reactionary, sometimes furiously so, intolerant, exclusionary, mean-spirited living. I had one of those experiences this week that always causes me some consternation. There was a dinner held here in town where um, some people were invited to meet Dr. Ross Ellenhorn. Ellenhorn is, you can look him up on Amazon or Wikipedia, all his books and programs. He is uh, both on the East Coast and West Coast, is a very highly regarded medical professional who is doing some successful psychiatric, psychiatric recovery treatment work. Um, he's a very engaging man. He's Jewish. And, and uh, I was placed directly across from him at dinner. And um, so he asked our host, what is his, pointing to me, connection with this group? And our host said, well, uh, most of us here at the table have been listening to Dr. Curley teach the Ordinary Life Gathering for years and benefiting from it. And um, by the way, none of those people are here. They don't come here. They listen on podcasts later. They have other things that they're doing out in the world. And, and um, the guys that I am talking about keep referring back to the time in ordinary life when we begin the series between the no longer and the not yet. That, that time that I about. So I knew it was coming, and I'm never prepared for it. So he said, uh, so what's ordinary life like? What do you do? <clears throat> I'm going to call on one of you to come up here and answer that question. Cool. I'm so often a smart ass when being asked questions like that. Somebody will say uh, when they find out, I try, not, I try my best to avoid labels. I don't want a label put on me. I'm a pastor, preacher, psychologist, any of that, because when people hear it, they put you in a box. I don't want that. But it creeps out. Uh, you're a psychologist. What kind of psychologist are you? My smartest answer is a good one. <laughs> it's not very helpful. Now, last week I said, you know, we're in this transition of handing this class over to you to make it your class. So uh, if you want Ordinary Life to continue, you're going to have to take ownership of it. It might be helpful for you to have an answer to that question. So on the website, it says that ordinary life is about wisdom teaching for ordinary mystics in ordinary life. And then there's a subtitle to that that says that we are making the sacred journey, already sacred journey, sacred. So that night, between um, a man I came to know as Ross and Bill, there was considerable back and forth. But um, afterward, I went home and I wrote down what I thought I said. 
and I don't know that it's coherent, but I found myself saying that ordinary life is a place where I attempt to have conversations. I know this isn't a conversation, it's a lecture, but I hope it's conversational in style, that um, are about the values of love, truth, and freedom, that are personally relevant and inclusive of everyone, and that my current focus is on deconstructing the current understanding of Jesus and his teachings in a way that allows both our hearts and heads to be equal partners in our, in our faith journey. I see myself as a reporter, a spiritual reporter. I'm, I'm doing research and reading outside of here and coming back and saying, oh, look what I found. You know, it's not like... This is new to me, but I mean that I'm originating this and I'm just reporting the things that I have found that are meaningful to me. And though I can be a smart ass, I am deadly serious about the content of this teaching because I think we live in fraught times when we need the teachings of Jesus, that there are no others. Many people might find my teachings unconventional, but my goal is to see if we can make Jesus and his message compelling again, even irresistible, so that at the moment, ordinary life is about being biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. There is much more to the faith of Jesus than argument about abortion and gay rights. When we got up to leave the dinner, uh, Dr. Ellen Horn said, we need more of that, and I was pleased. So when Harvey Cox published his book on the future of faith, he implied that we were entering the age of the spirit. And I think, I certainly got this when I first heard Ilya Delio and some other people, um, that we were moving in a world that was going to be more beneficially, mutually entangled and involved in a positive and helpful way. Uh, we hadn't done that. We've not done that. And I don't want to infect you, but uh, I do too, but not with this. Uh, at the moment, I'm not optimistic about the future of our country. At the moment, I'm not optimistic about the future of the church. And I don't want optimism to be confused with hope. They're different things. I do believe, and here's where I think the Jesus story as an archetype can be so useful in giving us hope. I do believe that darkness cannot extinguish the light, that death cannot defeat life. And that the function of the empowering community is to remind us of this. And for us to be equipped to carry our brothers and sisters when they can't carry themselves because someday we'll be in that position and need to be carried. And we are here, as Ram Dass said, to walk each other home. Someone, after recounting to me... Um, the destructive things they see going on in the world said to me this week, I feel hopeless. And um, I understand that. And you got your reason to feel maybe hopeless if you do. And at one level, hopelessness seems like kind of a rational response. But if we choose 
to be followers of Jesus. Hopelessness is not an option. When um, I came to Houston in 1966, one of the reasons I came was to get involved in clinical education. That was in 1966. And, and, and the very first book we were assigned to read as a textbook was Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. That's still among the 100 most influential books ever written. And if you have not read it, Get past the sexist language and just get a copy and read it. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust. And um, this talk is not about Viktor Frankl. I could go on. But Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, it's our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And right now, in your personal life, maybe in this church's life, in the country's life, in the world's life, wherever you locate yourself, is that space between stimulus and response. And in that space, we have one thing, and that's the freedom and power to choose. Hope may seem irrational, but choose it anyway, because that is the future of our faith. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you.